as a kid, there was a time where my father, um, along with being a professor at Cedarville University, um, he would go around and he would actually um, fill in the pulpit and preach um, in different churches and help them as they were kind of in between times. And so um, as a kid, I would actually go around and, and I would just kind of be that snotty-nosed kid that would um, tag along with dad and go as he would preach at these different churches. And so a lot of times, you know, I'm sure I would, I would you know, bug him a little bit, like, dad, can we go to McDonald's? Can we go here? Can I have this? Can I color this? Can I take this? No, don't do that. Okay. And so, um, but I would go with him. And, and so I was just along for the ride for the experience. Well, one time he was preaching and he actually shared an illustration that stuck with me. And so I want to start this morning off with that. And it's about a guy named Charles um, Blondin, who was a French tightrope walker and who in the 1860s was famous for actually crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And so Charles Blondin would cross, it's over 160 feet high across Niagara Falls. People from Canada and the U.S. would gather. And it was just amazing that this man could walk back and forth over this tightrope. And so he started carrying different items uh, across back and forth. And then one time he actually took a wheelbarrow filled with um, a bag of potatoes. And he, he walked with a wheelbarrow. Um, and you, I think we actually even have a picture of it. Wheelbarrow across the tightrope, and um, and so he would actually walk across, and it was incredible. And so the crowd's cheering, and it's awesome. And then um, he actually said, "Do you believe that I could carry someone across in this wheelbarrow?" And the crowd's like, "Yeah, yes, I believe. You're the greatest. You can do it." He said, "Do you believe that I can do this?" They're like, "Yeah, okay." So who's jumping in? And the crowd kind of got a little bit quieter because see it's one thing to say that you believe something it's one thing to say that you believe something it's another thing to actually put action behind belief the crowd was saying yes we believe you can do it but they weren't quite ready to jump into the wheelbarrow with Charles London. Well, this morning I want to talk to you um, as we continue our series called Faith Works. We want to talk about how faith and works go together. And this morning's message is actually kind of the crux of the chapters of James. And actually, and really this issue of faith and works comes to head here in James chapter Two. Now, before we jump into it, you got to understand and have, let's have a, a little bit of understanding of what is faith in the first place. And so let me read a couple of passages to you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, reads this, that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. And then um, Romans 4.21, Paul is writing... Um, about this guy named Abraham. We're going to talk about him more in a little bit, but it actually says in chapter 4, verse 21, that Abraham lived fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That he lived fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's an awesome, awesome definition of faith. That your life is lived in light of the promises of God. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so, simply put, what is the, what is the connection between faith and works? If you're taking notes, you want to write this down, is that faith is the root Works are the fruit. Faith is the root, and works 
are the fruit. The heartbeat behind the very name of Mission Grove Church is that no single tree makes a grove, but that a grove can start from just one tree. And that it's when you plant the seed of the gospel into the soil of your heart and let that establish and to grow and establish the roots into your soul and that your identity is tied with who Jesus is, that you can start to grow in your faith and you start producing fruit. And so faith is the root and root and and works are the fruit. See, this passage that we're going to look at today, James chapter 2, is actually seen as a theological scandal. Everyone go, oh. everyone just do that. Oh, okay. And so in, in seminaries around the country and other places, they get in these heated debates that no one outside of seminaries talk about. But um, there's a debate here in James chapter 2 of saying, no, James is saying something in contradiction to Paul. Because you see, in James chapter 2, verse 24, he writes, he says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, Paul writes something kind of different, and he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, he says, And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus in order to be justified in faith and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Wait, hold on a second. <laughs> James has said, I will be justified by, by works. And then Paul says, no, you won't. And then even in Romans 3.28, Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So the scandal is... <gasps> Does the Bible have a contradiction in it? Did they fight? Did they argue? What happens here? Well, really, it's not a contradiction. It's an issue of context. And so I'm going to put up a little chart here just so that we can have a framework for when we go through this passage. So you have Paul and you have James. And you have the problem that they were writing to. They have their definition of works. And then they have the purpose for which they talk about works. They have, um, and so first it's a problem. The problem that Paul was facing was one of legalism. Legalism. So he was writing to Jewish believers and said, okay, now that these people believe, and now other people are coming to faith too, they're saying, wait, hold on a second. They have to do all the rituals, all the practices, and all the law that we had to do. And so they battled legalism. But James is actually talking about the battle of laxity or apathy. In other words, he's saying, okay, you can't just say you have faith and then nothing happens. It doesn't work like that. You actually have to back up or show evidence to of what you say you believe. And so in Paul's definition of works, he's actually talking about Jewish law. In other words, you cannot be saved by just simply obeying rules. And that, he's battling this concept of just being saved simply by religion. And instead... Paul writes about, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship with Jesus. And therefore, grace, okay, faith by grace, you are saved. And then James is actually talking about the Christian lifestyle. Okay, if you say you believe, then your life needs to back that up. So their purpose in writing, Paul is actually writing how to know that you are a Christian. Whereas James is writing how to show that you are a Christian. 
So when you see these two passages side by side, you understand that it's not actually a contradiction, but it's different contexts addressing different problems. And so we're going to focus in on James for the rest of the morning and talking about how really it's about showing your faith. You say you believe something, but then what does it look like? Uh, Further proof here from that is that James chapter 2 verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so James himself is even saying, no, it's about faith in Jesus is what counts. And then check out what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Oh, there you have it, John. It's not about works. You can't talk about works ever. It's not about works. That's great if you stopped at verse 9. Now, some of you cheated and already read on the screen verse 10, but let's go ahead and read this together. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, it's about actually living out your faith. You claim one thing and then you do it. If you say something and then you do absolutely nothing, that's not called faith. That's called politics, right? Okay, too much, too harsh on someone. Sorry about that. Sorry about stepping on toes. Um, No, and so your faith, when you claim something, you have to back it up with action. You have to actually say, show evidence of what you claim to be true. And so we're going to spend, all of this is set up, so if you have your Bibles now, open up to James chapter 2, we're going to look at uh, verses 14 to, um, to 26, and it, we're going to actually look at three types of faith. We're just going to walk through verse by verse in this passage, and we're going to see three types of faith that people claim to have. I'm going to give you a, a, a heads up here, the first two are not good, and the last one is the one that we're actually striving for. So the first bad type of faith is actually described as dead faith. Dead faith. In James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17, let's go ahead and read this here together. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Notice he says here it's not... Does he have faith? He says, what good is it if someone says he has faith? In other words, this person in this passage is already claiming, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe. So he's saying, what good is it if he claims it, but then he doesn't have works? And then he gives an example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I played basketball in high school, and um, and we had possibly the world's worst water boy. And I say that, his his name was Grayson. He's actually a nice kid. He's grown up. He's now like a worship leader in a church and doing awesome things. So he's doing awesome right now. But Grayson, if you happen to watch this, dude, you were the worst water boy in the history of high school basketball. And I say that because he wanted just a free entrance into the games back then. And so he'd ride on the bus and stuff. And so we'd be in the game and it's really intense and we're battling and, it'd be a, and I'd come off the floor and I'd sit down and I'm like, Grayson. He's like, yeah. He's like, have some water? 
No. <laughs> you're, you are the water boy. Like you are, you are not just, you're not just the team boy. You are the water boy. And so like every time we get a timeout, I come to the bench and be like, Grayson. You're like, what? What do you think, man? You're the water boy. You got to do your role, man. You got to help us out. And so it wasn't good. And so, you know, a water boy does not get to be a water boy if he's not actually handing out water. In the same way, though, you can't claim to have faith if your action does not back it up. It'd be like if I claimed to travel the world, but I had no stamps on my passport. Well, I've been all over the world, and I haven't been, but I've, I've had the privilege at least of going um, over a dozen so years of ministry. I've had the privilege of leading teams on mission trips to several different countries and different places, and um, I had the humbling experience of uh, actually, so I was leading a team, and I was in my mid-20s, and I was excited. I was married. We had kids. It was awesome, and I, I'm sharing this because you'll know why in a second, and so um, I was excited. We had a team of about 25 people going on an international mission trip. You know, we got prayed over by the church. You know, they raised their funds. Everyone's pumped up. Everyone's excited. I'm excited. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Like, man, we got this team. We're going to go serve for Jesus. It's going to be great. But I don't like being cramped on a plane. And so I asked for exit row. And so I asked for exit row. And I got the exit row. So I'm sitting in exit row feeling good. I got like our whole team right behind me. We're like, man, we're going to go serve for Jesus. I'm a leader now. What up? It's going to be great. I'm feeling so good and mature as a pastor. I didn't have a goatee at the time. And that's important because um, at the time, the, the lady came right before the, uh, the announcements that no one pays attention to. And so she came and like, started going through all the details of what it means to be an exit row. And I was like, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I'll save the day for you. You need to open that door. You know, I'm, I'm in. And so she says, okay, great. One last thing. Um, sir, you have to be at least 16 to sit in this seat. I looked at her. I'm like, I'm thinking, lady, I have kids. Which just made an even more confusing look on the lady's face. Because apparently without a goatee, I look like a 12-year-old boy. And so she wanted to confirm that I was at least 16 and I had really prayed in hope that my team did not hear that go down. Um, but sure enough, the entire team heard that go down. And so all 25 of our team members started bursting out laughing. And so the entire mission trip, um, leaders were bringing me baby bottles. And they were saying, like, do you need me to drive for you? And, you know, I had one leader come and say, I know you're going through a lot of changes right now. And so I was like, and I did not hear the end of it. Um, but I share that because when you travel as a team and you travel overseas or you travel to a different country, you have a passport both for your identification but then proof of where you've been. And so in, in every country you go to, you get a stamp on that passport. Well, if someone claims to be a world traveler but yet their passport has never been stamped, then you're going to start to question the validity of that person's claim. In the same way, spiritually, I believe there are people who claim to be a world traveler for Jesus, that they have this robust faith. Yes, I believe in you, Jesus. Yes, I do. But if you take a look at their faith passport, they got no stamps in it. They, they haven't been anywhere. They haven't done anything. Their works do not back that up. They're not willing to meet the need of the person of their neighbor right across from them. And so you don't want to have the dead faith. The dead faith is kind of like a dead plant. Um, if, it doesn't matter how much you water a dead plant, it, it's not going to change, okay? And so I don't think anybody wants to have 
um, a dead plant. It doesn't, it doesn't go well. If you have the science project in elementary school where you're supposed to grow the lima bean or something and you kill it, it doesn't work, okay? It doesn't work if you have a dead plant. Well, dead faith is like a dead plant. Well, the second thing, the second type of faith is actually what's known as a deceased, deceived faith. And dead faith is like a dead plant. Deceived faith is like a fake plant. It's not real. It looks real on the outside, but there's no substance to it. It can't grow, and it can't produce fruit. Let's continue reading here in James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And I will show you my faith by my works. It says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So he's addressing this issue of in the day where people claimed that they knew God simply because they acknowledged that he existed. Saying, oh, I believe in God. Honestly, this is a very common view in um, our culture today. Oh, I believe in God. But there's no substance there. In fact, it says even the demons believe in God. So it's not about just acknowledging God's existence, but it's about acknowledging Jesus as Lord. And there's a difference there. And, and here's what scares me about apathy. I think one of the dangerous, most dangerous things facing our culture today is actually spiritual apathy. The idea of where we just don't care. It's like, I don't know. I don't care. Right? If, if you have kids and you ask them a question and you get that little, I don't know. Right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. Some people do that spiritually. Yeah, yeah, God's there. Cool. Well, whatever. Doesn't impact my life. Here's what's scary about that, okay? When we have no response to God, notice in this passage that even the demons have response to God and they shudder and tremble. So if demons are more afraid of God than you are, you might not be in the best spot. But think about a deceived faith in this way. It's not simply an acknowledgement. It's, it's about actually putting your works behind it and believing. So um, let me just grab a chair real quick. Okay. If I were to say that um, I believe that this chair can hold me up. And you had two people talking about this chair. I believe this chair will hold me up. Well, there are a couple different ways to prove that you believe in the chair. Okay, you say, oh, I believe that the chair is there. We gathered together as a group and we all agreed that the chair can hold us up. We sang songs about how the chair can hold us up. I'm telling other people about all the science behind how this chair can hold people. Like, I believe that this chair can hold me. So we can make all kinds of claims, but what's the easiest way to show people that you believe the chair can hold you? It's to sit down. It's to sit down. And what, what James is saying here is when it comes to, instead of having a deceived faith or a fake plant faith, be willing to sit down in the chair. If you say you believe that God has freed us from sin and that God has loved us and forgiven us of our sins, then that actually frees us to love others like Jesus loved us. So don't just claim to have faith but actually show people your faith 
through sitting down in the chair, through actually your actions proving your belief. Faith is the root, works are the fruit. Okay? Um, in being a youth pastor for 12 years, one of the activities we would do in recent um, times was we would have a lip sync battle. It was grade versus grade lip sync battle. Uh, actually, I see Colin here front row. Colin's group was awesome. They've, they won a few lip sync battles in their day. Um, and I remember I had, one year I had the senior guys, and, uh, and we did um, Staying Alive. Okay, and there's a reason lip sync and not sync. So, um, and so we would do this, and we choreographed this whole dance, and it was awesome. And then we had judges, and it was, it was humiliating and hilarious at the same time. But uh, I remember with our small group of guys, I think Joey was in that, uh, back there running lights for us, and, uh, and he was in that group with us. And we did all these actions, and it was great. Um, and then it went to the judges of our Staying Alive performance, and they looked at it and said, hey, great movement, but you didn't actually sing the song. And we're like, I know, I, I, it's a lip sync. We didn't sing it. It's like, no, you didn't actually move your mouth one time. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I was so worried about getting the, the moves right that I did the whole lip sync like this. <laughs> so like, it was not believable at all. Um, and so the, the thing behind a lip sync is that when people do it really well, you almost can't tell that they're not singing. Have you seen those? They've been really awesome, and it's so much fun. Um, but have you ever been on a performance where someone is supposed to be singing, but then you find out that they were lip singing and it goes off, like Mariah Carey on New Year's Eve or something like that, and it's just, it's not good, right? Like when you're supposed to be singing and then it comes out that you were lip syncing the whole time, like it doesn't come out well. Well, I'm fearful as Christians with a deceived faith, how many of us are just simply providing lip service instead of actually living out a lifestyle, Right? We, we, we pretend like we're singing the songs, we act like we're, we're living the faith, but really our actions are not backing up. And if, if somebody would actually listen to us closely, they'd understand that we're actually not singing. <laughs> we're, we're, we have a deceived faith, we have a fake plant. We want, we want to act like we're saved, but we're not yet. Okay? So you have a dead faith, it's like a dead plant. You have a deceived faith, that's like a fake plant. But then the kind of faith that we pray for, that we long for, the kind that changes the world is seen as a dynamic faith. A dynamic faith. This is a plant that grows and produces fruit and multiplies and the type that we long for here at Mission Grove Church. A dynamic faith can be described in this way. Let's read together here in James chapter 2, verse 20. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active long along with his works and faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we have this first picture of a dynamic faith of Abraham. And the reason there is controversy between Paul and James is because Paul highlights, actually, we don't have time to dive into it, but um, he actually highlights Genesis 15, where God gives a promise to Abraham, and Abraham lives out in light of that promise. But then James talks about this idea of him actually acting on the promises of God found in Genesis chapter 22. And so simply put, the, the promise that God gave Abraham was, 
I want you to go and I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And I'm going to give you a son. And from that heir, you're going to create the nation that's going to ultimately become Israel and the Jewish faith as we know it. And so he has this promise in, in Genesis chapter 15. But then he actually goes 25 years. 25 years before they actually have the son, Isaac. And then when he has the son, Isaac, God actually asks him to make a sacrifice of his son. So the same thing that he had been longing for, God asked for a sacrifice of. But at the moment where, where Abraham is about to uh, sacrifice his son, Isaac... He provides a replacement or a replacement sacrifice there. And then, and his son is saved and, and the Jewish faith as we know it really was born. And that's in Genesis 22. And the reason that's important is because his faith was credited as righteousness in Genesis 15. But then his faith was demonstrated in Genesis 22. And so you see that Abraham, this, this rich, educated, religious, awesome example said, you know what, I'm not saved by religion, I am saved by faith, and I demonstrated that with my works. And so you have this incredible picture of Abraham. And I highlight that. Because his very next example is the most extreme opposite of that. So you have Abraham, the founder of the Jewish faith. Okay, and then check out this next example. Here in verse 24, or 25. And in the same way, so in other words, equally, equally credited as righteousness. Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out on another way? So here it is, this, this prostitute named Rahab and a lady who was seen as a Gentile, not a Jew, poor, not rich, uneducated, not educated, very sinful, very rebellious, he, she checked every possible box of what you should not do, but yet when push came to shove, she believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She believed in that God, and she believed that that God would provide and, and protect her. And so her actions was she protected spies and actually saved their lives. And so now here we are thousands of years later talking about this lady, not because of her past, but because of that moment where she put her faith into action. And so you have two extremes of faith at work. You have Abraham, the religious guy. He said it's not about religion. It's about living persuaded that God has the power to do what he promised. And then you have the uneducated, sinful, not religious woman who is equally credited as righteousness and her faith was demonstrated through her works. And then we have that last verse there in verse 26. It says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Adrian Rogers says it this way. He says, It's, it's not the works that bring life. It's the life that brings works. In John 15, we, we find out this, this concept of abide in Jesus. We are merely branches, but Jesus is the vine. That if we abide in him, believe in him, then naturally we produce fruit. Well, what is the fruit? What, what is work supposed to do? Well, works can be described as, um, be found in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. It talks about uh, the, works of, or the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So are you becoming these things? Are you becoming love? Are you becoming more like Jesus? When he says that faith is connected with works, what he's saying is that when you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it is a natural expression to love others. So just as the body is dead without breath, so the spiritual body is dead without spirit. And so as we breathe in the breath of God, we can breathe out and love others as Jesus has loved us. Mount Rushmore was completed in 1941 in the Black Hills of Keystone, South Dakota. And the sculpture includes 60-foot carvings of the presidents of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. According to the National Park Services, it's visited by two and a half million people every single year. They created this monument to celebrate what has happened in our country. But can I tell you something? A monument has no power. A monument is just simply a reflection or a look back at something done or who someone was. And I feel like churches today sometimes are described as monuments to God. But I want to end this morning by telling you that the church is not a monument to God, but a movement of God and a movement for God. And that when people believe in the power of Jesus Christ, And then live in a way that loves people unconditionally. That offers light in the midst of darkness. That offers peace in the midst of restlessness. That offers joy and purpose and meaning. And is forgiving and is filled with grace and mercy and serves. When we live a life of faith expressed through works, we can change the world. The church is not a monument. We don't come here and just talk about a God that once was. We talk about the God who is living now. And he's in this place. And he is present. And he is here. And we believe it. And we live it. And when we do that, we can change the world. Every relationship, every conversation, every community, every school, we want to see God radically change the North Valley with the gospel so that more people will know the glory of God and experience eternal life with him. And we do that when we live out our faith with how we love our community. Amazing things happen. Our faith is not dead. Our faith is not deceived. Our faith is dynamic and alive and moving this morning. Amen? So let us be reminded as a church not to simply acknowledge God's existence but to establish the root of faith in our hearts and grow in community. That you can't do it alone. It's not about perfection but about progress and that we can actually live in a way that God is glorified. You know, talk to some of the leaders in the back. Join a growth group. Get connected so that you can take that next step in your faith. And it starts by believing in him. And I just want to encourage you with this. If you could close your eyes, close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment. As the band comes back up on stage, I'm passionate about this because I truly believe that the gospel changes everything. 
And if you've never prayed to receive him, if you've never actually put your faith in him, I want you to pray along with me right now. Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner and God, I, I can't make it to heaven on my own. But God, while I could not reach up to you, you reached down to me. And by dying on a cross, God, you, you forgave my sins. And by rising again on the third day, God, you give me eternal life. I don't simply acknowledge that you exist, but I acknowledge you as Lord. God, be the Lord of my life. And God, I pray and I commit my life to you. I want to sit down in that chair. I want to show my faith through action. God, I pray that if there's somebody here that has never taken that first step after salvation of getting baptized, that they would mark on that connection card that they want to get baptized. They want to take that next step and they will get baptized next Sunday. God, I pray that if they need to talk to someone about their faith or how they can live that out and that they acknowledge that they've had a dead faith or a deceived faith, but God, they want the dynamic, life-changing faith of knowing you and living that out. God, I pray that we can just be changed by that. God, we believe this, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, in our soul, in our hands. And so God, may our works be the fruit as our faith in you is the root in our lives. We love you, God. It's in your son's name we pray. 